Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Chu Chow has spent his career championing happier workplaces. Founder and CEO of Mintigo, the end-to-end financial well-being solution that empowers employees to live a financially happier and healthier life, his hugely impressive track record in the tech sector includes nine years as co-founder and CMO at SaaS platform Perkbox, Europe's fastest-growing employee experience platform. Educated in the US, his early career saw him gain a wealth of experience in tech giants Amazon, Yahoo and Microsoft before going it alone and heading it out into the world of tech startups. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Chu Chow, good morning. Welcome to the Astrology Podcast. As always, great to have you on as my guest. I appreciate your time. And uh, as as is always the way, customary in Astrology uh, world, we'll start with the early days before we go on to explore how life and career has evolved for you. But uh, tell me, where did you grow up and uh, and what was childhood like for you? Sure. Well, firstly, thanks for having me. I really love these types of shows. So yeah, I grew up I grew up in Houston actually as an American. I've been here for twenty years as well, so sort of midlife right now. So I see myself as half American, half British. My early childhood days, you know, it was it wasn't easy actually because we were. Um, uh, I was a child and an immigrant growing up. I wanted to be, you know, a lot more than I thought I could be in in the early days. Meaning that, and I didn't speak English until I was five, so I had to really kind of get to grips with the American culture. So I arrived actually in America when I was two, so quite young uh, early on, but my parents were so busy, you know, doing various jobs and starting their own business. And, uh, but what I did really well and early on is, is I learned how to be self-sufficient. I studied, I put myself to school. I just found, you know, the right people to be with luckily. And, uh, and, uh, my childhood was actually really good. I really enjoyed it. I went to, you know, good, high school in in Houston um it was actually a foreign language high school and 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 so that was actually one of the things I really fell in love with when I was uh really young I studied Spanish so firstly my background is is Chinese so so I grew up in you know my parents ancestries in China they emigrated to Vietnam and obviously with the Vietnam War they 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 left again uh to the U.S. as, as a political refugee so in my household we were you know speaking my parents grew up Obviously in Vietnam, so they spoke Vietnamese to each other. They spoke to me in Chinese, a dialect of Chinese, and I, and obviously living in America, I had this sort of nice kind of hybrid culture, of, you know, a mixed mash of of languages, and and that really got me excited uh, about cultures and languages. So I studied Spanish, I studied German, and then when I went to university, I studied Mandarin because the, the Chinese I spoke at home was is actually called Chaozhou, which is actually a dialect. And so for me, it was actually quite exciting to see the world in, in such a you know diverse way. My friends were quite diverse as well uh, in terms of various backgrounds from like, you know, Spanish, Mexicans and, you know, Americans, all sorts. Um, so I had a really, uh, you know, I guess, uh, diverse childhood and I wanted to do more of my life. I think early days, I wanted to be 
a diplomat, uh, I thought. I said, well, this is kind of cool. Why don't we just travel the world and, you know, meet all sorts of people? And then I realized that to be a diplomat is not actually that exciting. <laughs> Lots, I'm not really into politics. I just like the, I guess, the, the idea of, of interacting with people was really what drove me. When did you, uh, when did you first recall developing an interest in technology? It was actually, my, my interest in technology kind of evolved uh, very early on. It was, it, was, it was actually in parallel because I really loved linguistics. But at the same time, I really uh, liked technology. I think my first real experience was when I, my dad bought me an IBM PS2. Uh, this is 1986. It had two megs of RAM. Uh, we had a modem 4800. But it was just like I had a MS-DOS. It was actually one of those really old machines that didn't have a, a graphical interface. And I read through the MS-DOS, you know, handbook. It was fun. It was it was a huge, it cost, you know, so I, 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 my dad and I my leg to, to get it. But that was the point I realized, like, you know, this is kind of cool. I can actually play around with this machine and, and, and learn and, and do things. And that stuck with me. And what was it about, you mentioned this is really cool, what was it about it that, that engaged you, that, that attracted your interest to the extent that it did? It was new. It was something that no one else really knew about. And I wanted to be sort of at the forefront. I thought this is kind of cool. No one, none of my friends really had anything like this. And I, I can control this machine by entering, you know, uh, lines of code. And I just really like looking forward into the future, how things can be. Versus kind of looking, it's always me. I'm very optimistic as a person. I've always wanted to live, you know, for the future as much as anything else. And that represented the future for me. Was was there a, a point at which, or was there an event that prompted you that a career in technology might be something that you would, you would seek to, to pursue? Yeah. So it was uh, funny enough. So the way I looked at my career and how it evolved was initially, you know, I went into university i went to boston university um and i, I thought long and hard as to what i want my career to be and i at first i thought it was you know lang language and linguistics then it was more of a hobby it, it, you know i studied many years of spanish i really enjoyed that but it, there wasn't much of a path for me so i studied business administration and marketing and i, I chose marketing because if it really suits my personality it, it is a way great marketers are great storytellers you know they communicate and they connect with people and that was a natural bridge from my linguistic kind of desires. And then from there, I realized that, you know, the best type of marketing at the time that I got really interested was digital marketing. And so my actual first job was with Amazon, real job that is. And, uh, and so it was, it was a combination of technology plus marketing. I was actually really fortunate to, to have started my career there, actually. Do you, you mentioned studying business at university. Going back just slightly, you, your parents starting their own business, had that sort of business interest been spiked by the influence that you'd experienced from your parents? That's a great question. It really was. Uh, and it was one of the things that I, funny enough, when I started in my early days and well, growing up in Houston, my parents would, so would take us to the marina. So they had a shrimping business, a wholesale shrimping business. So, and they'll sell the seafood to restaurants, what have you. But I'd go there every weekend and they'll on the, on the, on the way there, on the way back, it's about an hour to hour, hour and a half drive. They'll just talk about their business and then really just, you know, the problems, the pains, the wins. And I've really enjoyed it. I really had a deep appreciation appreciation of how hard it can be. And, and also the responsibility of just running your own show. You know, it's not always glamorous, but it's rewarding. I think that was the key thing that I learned from it. And, and I've always wanted that. So it was, it was an itch that I needed to scratch. 
but I didn't know how to get started. They never told me it's like, here's how you start a business or here's an opportunity to go after that. They always, it wasn't, you know, they didn't have that insight. And so early, early days, the best kind of decision I made was start with a company that was quite stable and had a good CV, uh, had, had a good logo, so I could put it on my CV and that was, that was Amazon. And, and, and what had it been about Amazon that attracted you from the get-go? Because I guess this would have been what, early, early noughties, that sort of time. So clearly yeah. Amazon was getting to be a fairly sizable, well-known organization at that time, but clearly nowhere near the size and scale and the household name that perhaps it enjoys today. What was the attraction of Amazon from your perspective? It was, um, so I joined Amazon 2000. Uh, it was right after the, the bubble uh, burst. And obviously it was the poster child for, for the internet, right? And, and, and obviously the brand, it really attracted me as a marketer. It's like, okay, this is a really cool place. And, and you know, I, I yeah, I was really fortunate because I, I wanted, I did everything I could to, to get that job. Actually, when I first applied to Amazon, the only opening was, here's a good story. When I first applied, the only opening was a research role. And, uh, and so I don't really mind whatever I can get, you know, role I can get in. So I, I applied for it. And uh, for about four weeks prior to the interview, I would do all this research on Amazon, on the marketplace and on everything uh, just to show them that I can be you know, a great researcher. And, um, and so I went into the interview and asked me a whole bunch of questions. And I, there's one article I remember reading about the gap. And the whole kind of like how they did their own um, product development and, and the, you know, uh, design for the year. And I thought I really nailed it. And I said, like, and so I came out just glowing and, and they thought, wow, this is, you know, this is really good. And so when I came back and uh, they said, you, you know, what you did was amazing. I thought you were really good for the second interview. Um, but then what they said later was like, you know, we're not actually good, good enough for us, uh, unfortunately. As a researcher, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is horrible." I spent all this time uh, researching and trying to get there, but what they realized was, I wanted I wanted so badly. And so, like, there's a marketing role opening up. Would you like to apply for that? And I said, "Yeah, please, can we do that properly now?" So yeah, so I got in, and I guess the rest is history. But the idea was just you know to really try as hard as you can, um, regardless. You know, if if I just looked at the job listing and didn't see a marketing role, you know, they could easily say, "Yeah, it's not it's not a place for me." But I just pushed, and I think that drive as a 21-year-old to do whatever I could just to prove myself um, uh, won them over. And where do you think that that drive comes from? I guess my parents. I think you know, uh, you know, just the childhood, you know, experiences really uh, help grounded me because in life, you know, it's not about what you know. That's what I realized quite early on is just how hard you push and and the the. The experience of connecting with people uh, and, and learning how to show them that you can achieve more than what you're capable of doing now. Being being a, a fast learner, being a problem solver, being resilient. These are all the things that I've learned from my parents because they came into the country, into the U.S. without anything and no knowledge of the culture. But they started a successful business that put me through university, my, my siblings, and I was extremely proud of, of, of that as an example uh, of, of living a life that that, you know, seemingly on the surface was just near impossible to achieve. So I just took that and that became who I am. And I think that's, that's really what people saw. And so your your early career reads like a, a, almost a who's who of the tech behemoths, giants, um, the great and the good of the tech world at the time, Amazon, Yahoo, Microsoft. What, what do you think that that early experience with those organizations equipped you with? That's 
I've been really fortunate, like I said before, to be a part of those organizations. It's taught me a deep appreciation for specialism and, 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 and working with people who are genuinely very well trained in what they do. Um, the respect for professions, because I've met people who are just so good at one particular thing or a few things and just going really deep and, and, and saying, look, it's not good enough just to kind of skim over things and kind of do a whole lot of things. You have to be really good at something to make a dent. And so what I've learned in life is that you, there are certain things that you have to juggle and you kind of do just enough to get by, but there are other things that you have to get really good at to actually make a difference. And so, you know, Amazon and, and Microsoft, you know, you know, it's a collection of specialists. You know, obviously, even managers are specialists in in sense they are great managers, right? Even though they're looking across, you know, a whole organization, but what they're really good at is is, is specializing in, in great management. So even 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 on the surface it may seem general, but it's not. And so that's what I've learned from these organizations. So and and I became a specialist in digital marketing, you know, out of necessity, but also of the training that I got in those organizations. I also learned to love your specialism. And that's really the other thing, because you know, when I was really young, I thought, okay, I'd get bored of this quickly because it's, you know, it's one thing, but then I realized if you really like that and see that as a, as a profession, you start digging deeper and the deeper you dig, the more you learn and the more appreciation you have for that one particular marketing function where it's, where, where it relates, is it SEO or PPC or brand building? And you start to talk to these people and you develop this deep appreciation for it. So that's, that's really what I've learned. Things do happen slower. Uh, I think there's a bit of bureaucracy. So there's, there's that balance of, of uh, you know, learning from great people, but also compared to you know, the startup world, it's, it's on a different sort of pace and, and timeline. Where did the, or when did you first decide to, to step out into the world of startup? I, I'm I ought not to make any assumption, but from what you've described of your, of your childhood and your parents' business, that that sort of, you'd seen that ownership and what that, could entail highs and lows, I'd imagine, as a consequence, as you described. But was there a point at which you thought, do you know what, I'm going to get out and do something on my own? Yes, all the time. I remember, and uh, it's funny because I would be in these great jobs, you know, at Microsoft or, at, you know, Amazon. I actually started closer towards the sort of the second half, after five years of uh, that sort of, my, my career was uh, spent two years at Amazon, four years at Yahoo, and uh, three years at at Microsoft, and it started sort of during my uh, Yahoo days, where every six weeks I was trying to get a lunch or a coffee in with a with an entrepreneur just to, you know, uh, <laughs> to kind of poke around and see what's happening, and you know, because the itch was there, uh, uh, you know, early on. I just didn't know where to start, and I just want to kind of get a flavor for what's out there, and you know, it it was hard because I had a you know stable job, and I wanted to you know not leave that because I didn't have much of a savings and I, you know, it was the big unknown, right? I wanted to start my own business. Couldn't find a company that actually I could join and you know, I thought was, was right for me. In hindsight, I wouldn't have spent that much time. I spent 10 years in these great organizations, but I, I would have just probably spent like five or six years, I think, because I could have, I think I could have done uh, more uh, earlier in my life. That's, that's one thing I'd say. And so the, it was just about finding the right opportunity at the right time. And so in, in 2010, um, Microsoft offered voluntary redundancy and they paid really well and they actually had a really good package. And that gave me about six months of uh, pay that I can say, hey, look, if I don't do anything in six months, at least I'm not in trouble <laughs> financially. And so that was the impetus, really. Uh, and then there I started looking around in earnest, did a bit of consulting on my own and just found a, a, a good bunch of people to start a new business. 
when you made the decision to take that that voluntary redundancy with uh, with Microsoft, had you a sort of a with it with the uh, we'll come on to talk about Huddleby and, and Perkbox, but was that starting to form the sort of nub of an idea, and you'd started to create a concept that you thought could ultimately become a business in its own right? Yeah, it wasn't as as straightforward as that. To be totally honest, we we started with an idea, and, and so here's the story of, of Huddleby. We started in twenty, you know, in the 2010, 2011, uh, we kind of launched. That was actually the year that my daughter Layla was born as well. So it was a double whammy uh, of, of uh, starting a new business. But you know what? I just I just took it as it is. And, and that was my best decision to kind of go ahead. We didn't have an idea that we thought was robust. And when we started Huddleby in 2011, Groupon was all the rage. You can hear you know, all these different models, B2C, you know, daily deals. And we say, okay, why don't we create a B2B version of that? you know, of a Groupon and call that how to buy. And so we created that business off, off the back of our CVs. We had a great, you know, uh, marketing and sales kind of background. And so we had, you know, angel investors who bought into that idea. But we learned within three to six months, it wasn't the right business model. And that was devastating as, as an entrepreneur, a first-time entrepreneur, because the platform didn't drive enough revenues The people who were uh, actually getting traffic for didn't actually convert well. We didn't make money essentially. And so investors were actually really upset at the time. So like, this is what you pitched. This is not what we get. We still have some money in the bank. You have it back. And we said, sorry, uh, we, we're not going to give it back. <laughs> we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going. We're going to figure out you know, what, what, what the right path is. And so we pivoted. So, I mean, it's a long story, but ultimately it was three pivots. You know, we moved from like the daily deal Groupon version to a premium kind of affiliate uh, um, loyalty pr- platform. I mean, um, and from there we realized that we partnered with uh, WorldPay for business as a white label provider. And so they had like 200 SMEs. And so we wanted to sell to more SMEs. And so what happened was we, we created this white label pro- platform for WorldPay. And these SMEs uh, were asking. So the, the deals that we had were mostly business deals for business owners. But we also had a few personal perks and discounts on the platform as well. And so what happened was these business owners were saying, this is great. I love what you offer me as a business owner. But, I, you know, these discounts for my wife, my kids personal products and discounts. That's great as well. I actually have a few employees I'd like to offer this to as well. Can you give me a few extra licenses so I can give it to my staff because I'm really enjoying what you have. And so that was the beginnings of Perkbox. We realized, you know what? We can actually do that for you. We, we can actually give you more licenses. Why not? And so we quickly called it, you know, how to buy perks. And then realized very soon after that, you know, it wasn't a great name. It was too many syllables. got confusing. And but that really took off. And so what we did was we, we, we in 2014, 2015, we rebranded the business. And so we took a step back. It says, what do we have here? We have traction. People really enjoying the discounts. And SMEs were overlooked at the time. No no SMEs were getting the discounts offer. You'd have to join like a Microsoft or something to get you know perks and benefits at the time. And so that's what we did. We created a brand called Box, and really focused on SMEs and say, look, you, you can compete with all the big players. You can offer your employees the best discounts and perks, just like you know Amazon would or Microsoft would. And so that really struck a, um, a nerve uh, amongst the SME community. And, and obviously with my marketing background, we created a tremendous sort of lead generation, I'd say machine uh, that drove tens of thousands of leads every month. We use Facebook, we use LinkedIn especially Facebook, which is traditionally a B2C platform. We converted that to a B2B lead gen platform. And that really, you know, put us on the map. 
and yeah, and, and Sparkbox is totally grew uh, from that. Uh, and that's how we created that brand. But the mo- mo- I think what I'm most proud of is, is the fact that we created not just a business, but a brand that I believed in terms of the values and the vision that Parkbox represented. And, and was there a point at which you thought, a sort of pivotal point, if you like, where you thought actually having had the heartache that you'd had with, with Huddleby, there's a point at which you thought we're onto something. We, you know, was, was there that pivotal moment where you thought, hey, this is, you know, we, we're really starting to get some traction here. And, and what was that moment? It was uh, when we started getting, you know, our leads are coming in. We were offering this and promoting this. It took us, to be fair, it took me about three months to figure out that lead generation process. At first, it was actually quite painful because when I started promoting Perkbox originally, I started putting ads out that showcased the discounts that we had. So we're selling cinema tickets, discounts, cinema tickets, whatever. We'll put an ad up for that. And it totally bombed. Like no one wanted to click on an ad that talks about discounts. We thought we were like a discount site. And what I've learned over the last two months is that we're not selling discounts. We're actually selling happiness. We're selling engagement. We're selling a better culture. And so what I did was I removed all, all references to discounts and savings and just had like really nice pictures of ice creams, lollies, things that make you smile. And people was like, this is really fun. Um, this is really engaging. What is Breakbox? And so that that was a light bulb moment that totally switched the marketing messaging from from a, you know from very kind of commodity driven messaging to an aspirational brand. So like what you want is the end result, and that is a more engaged, happier workforce. And you want that. You want you want a company that is the best in providing you know a workplace for your employees. Going back to when we were talking just just a minute or two ago about uh, about your exit from Microsoft and that voluntary redundancy process you referred to you mentioned that you've i think if i i heard you correctly you, you found a great group of people to, mm-hmm. to work with or perhaps a, tell me about that experience how did you go about you know finding because i think consistent throughout many a conversation i've had with that entrepreneur is that that whether it's a co-founder ultimately that that acknowledgement for those that truly succeed that you can't do it all on your own and actually it's a yeah. it is a team effort how did you go about kind of finding those people that ultimately you're able to form a really great team with and, and then start to build your business. Yeah. So I think back then I was, to be honest, I was really naive. I didn't know how to find good people. It was, it was more of a coincidence. I think with Mintigo, my current business, I, I can speak more to that. But back then it was just through friendship. Like we, we, we felt that we could work together because we played together. <laughs> that was, that was the idea. Uh, in hindsight, it was bumpy. It was no. It was actually hard. So we started with three co-founders. Ended up with two, just because our personalities as a work working group wasn't as compatible as we originally thought. And so it wasn't a fairy tale story, to be honest. But it was actually, you know, adjustments that I had to make you know, to ensure that it worked. And so I think we transitioned from like you know just a friends kind of relationship to a, a business relationship. And so uh, my advice for people is. Is be really clear as to the kind of relationship you want with your co-founders, right? It's it's going to be hard. And so you have to be very practical in terms of how you communicate. It can't be just because, you know, we've had a long history that, you know, you can have um, that same relationship going forward because there's going to be many, many testing times that forces you to be not yourself, meaning that you can be really angry. And I remember one time, you know, we got really upset with each other and we, we were shocked. We actually shocked each other because we've never seen each other that angry before because we always you know knew ourselves from like you know at the pub you know generally and so 
yeah, finding good people is so important. Uh, ultimately, we made it work. It wasn't easy, but I said, you know, I think it, I took that experience and I've actually did much better the second time around. I think it must be. It strikes me as that you know you you're brought together by um, as friends, if you like, from from shared interests, shared values, shared a shared sense of there, there's a connection. There, I think the challenge with that is then you start to think about fight, you know, growing a business together. Is that often there are those similarities that draw you together? Can kind of is there a risk that they get in the way because you you have to have then clearly defined roles, responsibilities. Arguably, you may have what what might have been that brought you together was similar traits, similar skills, similar areas of expertise. You then have to start to divide that up. There's a risk you kind of naturally want to go back to your default where you feel comfortable all those challenges that, that that as you're starting to scale are consistent themes throughout. I mean, were those some of these sorts of issues that you were starting to have to, to unpick? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think in terms of like, you know, who actually does the, the decision-making, right? Is it, you know, it's clear, is there a hierarchy? It should there be a hierarchy. You know, those types of questions become really hard. And, and how do you disagree and come to a conclusion, right? It's, it wasn't easy for us because we weren't really uh, prepared for that. We we all came from large corporate backgrounds, mm-hmm. and so the the culture of, of running, you know, being a part of large corporate like a Microsoft is very different. You know, you're on your own. There's no safety net. You don't get a an extra budget every quarter to do whatever you need to do. Right? <laughs> if you don't make the money, in, you know, you don't get the returns for your, your your efforts. That's it. No one's gonna, you know, give you a safety net. And so I think that put a lot of pressure on us, and we didn't didn't know how to act on on that as well as we should in the early days. But one thing I'd also say is I didn't have a mentor. I wish I did, I think, at the time. Yeah, I struggled. Obviously, my parents were there, but you know, they're a different generation. They, they wouldn't understand what I, uh, I was going through. And if we can find mentors at the time, uh, I think life would have been a lot easier for me, especially just because I didn't know what to do. I kind of stuck to what I knew, which is marketing and, and sales and creating what I did. But luckily, those bets paid off. You know, stuck with what I did, and what I did was I created a, a company that was known for its branding and marketing and connecting uh, with the end user, and that's what the market needed as well. You went on to you were Europe's fastest growing employee experience platform. Is that that's uh, yeah? Has no mean yeah. feat. To, to, to what do you attribute your success? Focus. I think really. I think we were not trying to do too many things in the beginning. We wanted to just delivered to a specific group of people. Those were the SMEs, uh, created a brand that sold on the premise of engagement, the promise of creating a great workplace, getting the very best offers and discounts on the platform possible. We, we, we didn't take you know commission or anything off of the, the back of the affiliates or anything like that. We offered and piled in all the discounts onto the platform. So the employees were getting the very best offers. So it's all about focus and, and being really good and well-known for one thing. And, and also, as a, as a brand, you want to make sure that what you say is clean and clear enough that the end users can repeat your message without any kind of clutter or confusion. And that's how a brand gets very viral and grows. Deliver a great product, have a great message, and just delight, surprise and delight people. And it, it takes a lot of focus. But for me, it was, it was fine because that's all I knew. I didn't want to do anything else. It was, you know, great marketing and, and sales and creating a brand that I really I believed in. And, and what did you enjoy about the experience? There's lots, lots. I mean, it was 10 years. I was I started in 20, 
well, a little bit less. So I started, I was with Parkbox from 2011 to 2019. Um, and um, it defined who I was as an entrepreneur, right? I, I um, you know, spent so many years of my life. There was lots of bumps along the way. The first, you know, between 2011 to 2015 was, it was really, really hard. It, we didn't have product market fit. We didn't know what we were trying to sell. And it was only 2015 that it just really took off. And so what I've learned is to be very, very resilient and to be very resourceful. Those are the two things I always kind of fall back to. If I have to crystallize everything that I've learned and done, it's those two things. You know, resilience because you're going to keep getting bumps along the way. You're going to pivot. You're going to have people leave uh, you, uh, the company. You've got to be resourceful to kind of So how do we pick ourselves up? What do we do? How do we find the answers? Who do we ask? And I think the last thing is just create a great culture. And, and that takes, you know, having the vision and the values that you believe in and communicate it well and how those people follow you, be with you. So, yeah, I've learned so much. I think I've been really, really grateful. And so I've, now I spend a lot of time helping and advising others as well. Whoever comes to me for quick advice, I'm more than happy to give because I never got that, you know, I wanted to make sure that others get a piece of that if, if possible. I was interested in your point about it defined, Perkbox defined who you were as an entrepreneur. And I think it's, how how difficult is it? I, I see one of the challenges for entrepreneurs is that, you know, the, the difference between passion and emotion. You know, if you're, if you're really attached, wrapped up to your point, defining who you are as an entrepreneur, arguably who you are as a human being in many ways, uh, is defined by your, you know, by that brand and and that and what that business represents. To take the emotion, therefore, of that attachment out of the equation, to maintain the passion, but be able to look dispassionately at, at business decisions and make clear business decisions is not. It, that's that's a difficult process, I think, for many an entrepreneur with whom I've engaged over the years. That to actually separate that out and say this isn't, you know, it's me, it's a business. It's not me, it's a business. Uh, I might be at its head, I might be driving its culture, its values, its purpose, its vision, all those kind of good things, but ultimately it's a business. Were you able to make that disconnect or is that something that having that connection, was that part of what gave you the success, do you feel? Yeah, I think early on, it was everything to me in, 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 in many ways, meaning like it was my identity. But as I got a bit older and more mature and I realized like exactly like what you said, exactly what you said. You know, this is a business, you know, I created a great business. I am still myself as an entrepreneur. And when I started sort of towards the end sort of, of my time at, 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 at Perkbox as a CMO, I, I started, you know, looking at other businesses, they've been investments. And I realized like I have a personal brand as well. I have a personal view uh, of, of things. And so that became hard. It was hard to decouple myself from the business over the years. But what I realized and one of the things that I've been, told early in my career is that you always want to hire people smarter than you and so that's what i did at Prickbox. i hired a great you know marketing director built a great team and they started doing things that didn't require me being around and and, and then i started realizing you know what it's not just me anymore and it's great that it's not just me anymore um and, and that kind of eased me out of this whole identity issue that you're saying right so it's, it's a great marketing space they went on to win marketing awards and you know, all without me, you know, being involved. Obviously, I'm on the sidelines, but that's great to see and, and, and feel. And I think I would encourage others as entrepreneurs to do that, to find ways to surround yourselves with great people. Because if your business is purely reliant on your abilities, you don't know how good it can be. 
And that's the big, one of the biggest discoveries I made is like, things can actually be better than what I did. Obviously I did this whole amazing lead gen program and it generated loads of leads, but there was a time and place for that. And businesses change all the time. So as we evolved, that didn't become the most primary channel anymore. It got saturated, things changed, and you know we have other channels to use for marketing. And obviously we had a great team to discover those new channels and develop those new channels. And that's when I realized, you know what? It is, it is a company properly. You know, uh, that's growing on its own without needing me to do the functional components. I'm still more of a, a leader. I'm a blue sky thinker, ultimately. That's what I love to come up with ideas and inspire people. And that's just really why what I've seen myself really excelling over the last five, five years, really, uh, as I took myself away from the functional requirements of, of my roles to more of a, a leader. And, and that's, that's really where I am now. So I, I see myself more as an entrepreneur now as than anything else. And with Mintico, my current business, I've taken all that and that's kind of distilled as much as I could to make it a success as well. With the benefit of hindsight, you mentioned perhaps uh, the benefits of a mentor earlier on in, uh, in, in the conversation, but with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything else that you might've done differently at Perk Box as you look back? I don't know. I, I would change that much because I think, you know, we've been very fortunate to experience that level of growth. I think I could have done better in terms of communicating some of the changes because, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is, you know, we're a people business, you know, a company is nothing more than a collection of people that agree to show up every day to do a job and have a shared vision. Yes, you pay them, but they don't have to always work for you. And I think one of the things that I've always felt that I could have done better was communicate, communicate changes, communicate vision and, and receive feedback. And so that for me was always a constant bit of anxiety. It's like, am I saying the right things at the right time or, or should I have said something better? Uh, and so, yeah, in hindsight, that's what I would say is, is to kind of bring people along the journey uh, a bit more, uh, even though Perkbox, you know, was, at the time it was still now, you know, represented culture and great culture. Like even so it was a bit ironic, right? That I still feel a bit of anxiety around, do we actually have the best culture? Am I, or am, are we being the best as leaders? Right. There's, there's always room for improvement. And if you focus on that, you always see yourself in a very humble way as a leader. So like, I can always be better. Then I think you put yourself in a really good position because this sort of this idea that you cannot constantly improve and have a, a growth mindset is really what I think great leaders uh, should be made of. So tell me, what was the inspiration behind Mintigo? It was my desire to continue to be an entrepreneur, to be part of this community where I'm helping employees. I feel very strongly about, and I think ultimately, if you take it you know, all the way back, what I wanted to do is create another business that had social impact, you know, something that really can leave, I can leave it, you know, an impact on society, a legacy that I'm really proud of. And I did a bit of exploring. And I realized, okay, what, what is it that I know that I do well? Right. It's it's not it's one thing to to kind of fall in love with an idea. Uh, it's nothing to kind of really find an idea that you can execute that there's a market need that you can scale. So there's lots of different things that I've seen in my, over my by time that to create a great business. You know, there's different between how a hobby and creating a, a, a you know a global business. <laughs> you know, hobbies are, are things that make you happy, and and there's that sort of constant desire to always make you feel good about it. Uh, creating a great business doesn't always make you you're happy all the time because it's it's tough it's hard so what i've looked at when i looked at that i realized that financial 
health and well-being is is an area I want to be in because it impacts everyone's lives uh, in in ways that you know people don't even know. I think we're at the very cusp of of that uh, revolution. You know, money is a necessary evil for you know in some people's eyes. It just needs to be there. It needs to be managed. And I think with Mintigo, I've embarked on something that I don't think we're completely there yet. But still, it's 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 we're seeing some amazing traction in what we're doing now. But the future of what we can do with with that business, I think, is really what's exciting for me. I think it's uh, it strikes me as it's always struck me as stunning that money, to your point, is such an integral part of the human experience of the of the planet on which we live. Uh, it's so interwoven into all of our lives. And yet financial education is so lacking in, you know, even from our, even from our early schooling experience, you know, you, you could argue, okay, so maths are an integral part of any curriculum, but that in itself isn't about financial well-being and financial education. So it strikes me that, yeah, to your point, there is a undeniably a need that you are looking to fulfill. Was there a moment that inspired you or some reading that you've done? You thought, actually, do you know what? This is it. This is what I know people need this, but actually there is a, I guess where, in that sense, where did the, the inspiration come from? Yeah. So I think this is funny enough. This feels like a repeat of Perk Box. And I, I, I thought I'd never go through this again because uh, I went through this with Perk Box. But the reality was I started with one idea and we had to pivot uh, over the last two, two years to, to get where we are right now. So with Mintigo, we started with a few features that we thought were like, you know, supposed to be really core to what we wanted to do. Uh, it was mostly around education and just tools to help people manage the budgeting better, the budgeting tools that we built. It's morphed into something totally different. So to give you a better understanding of what Mintigo does is that Mintigo is a financial platform that helps employers um, save money uh, and it helps employees save money as well as being financially healthier. So on the employer side, what we do is that we actually work with employers to improve their pension plan. Most employers, especially SMEs uh, and, and mid-sized businesses in the UK, are on standard pensions, not what we call salary sacrifice pensions. And it's a scheme that the HMRC, the government, provides, but 73% of the market don't know about this. And so what I've learned is that if we can help the helper, which is the employer, uh, save money and be financially better, we can use that budget to deploy for the employees. And that's one of the things I learned at Perkbox. Like you know, the biggest pushback when you go in with a well-being program or any program is the budget, <laughs> budget questions. Like where is the money coming from? Is it worth what we, you know, you're asking us to pay for? And so what we found here is that, well, we could create that budget because you're on the wrong scheme and you're paying national insurance in, in, over the odds for, for an NI. So, you know, salary sacrifice is, is what the government offers society and, and peoples, uh, uh, to to encourage them to do the right things. So pension, the government says, is something that you should invest more in. So that's why we're offering you salary sacrifice as a scheme. And so we're taking advantage of that and say, look, this is what the government says, you should do it, we can help you do that. So we help people upgrade. Uh, from there, we deploy um, what we call a pension dashboard. And so pension dashboard does that for the, gov- for the company, but also allows the employees to find lost pensions, consolidate the views of the pension, plan their retirement as a starting point. So what I'm trying to do here is I, I want to reimagine how people interact with their money. And if you were to stack rank the things that people have in their lives that are most valuable and the amount of attention people have towards that, there's some, some interesting insights that we discovered. So for most people, the most valuable assets they have across their whole lifetime, is probably real estate, their home, if they have a home, right? 
And then after that, it's actually pensions. And then after that, maybe a car or other kind of assets. But if you look at where people spend time and kind of obsess their time and optimize their assets, pensions out there as, a, as an anomaly. There's so much money floating around. It's about 20 billion pounds worth of, of lost pensions, yet people just don't find find them, know how to manage them or deal with them. And it's like, for me, this is this is wrong. If you were to reimagine assets and wealth across the world, that's where you should focus, at least start with. And so do you have a handle of you know, where all your past pensions are? So there's studies that show that for the average employee, there are 11 different pension pots in their careers. And, and half of them, they don't have no idea where they are. So it's very fragmented. So we want to reimagine all that. So like, let's get that sorted. And, and, and once we have that, we can move you on to other aspects of your financial world. And that's really why I think this is a groundbreaking you know, proposition in business, because if we can start that and make people, you know, people still think that pension is an old person's problem. <laughs> and if you were to deal with pensions when you're old, it's too late. Do you, do you, I was going to be my question, actually, why you, why you think the market is that fragmentation, that 20 billion to which you refer, for example, in, in lost pension. Do you think that's because we perceive that it is a problem that I'll get to at a later stage in life? So you always feel you know, for many, many people, I guess they're living through today, this week, this month maybe this year, that ability to project forward and think, where will I be in even five years time? You know, we live in such a, in many ways, a short-termist kind of view of life and the world and the argument that life is short, we focus on today. Is that, is that why you think, is it a psychological problem as much as it is a practical one? That's exactly it. You know, money on, on paper should be very much a numerical mathematical problem, but the reality, it's a psychological problem. People deal with money based on their emotions. You know, people, if, because pensions are not tangible, they can't access them until they're 65. They live for the present. There's lots of things I think we can do much, much better. It's a cultural issue, right? What does society say? Spend now, worry about the future later. You know, you got all this debt and the credit cards and, you know, pay now, buy now, pay later. It's all there to really, you know, put people further behind in terms of their payments and how they need to deal with their, their, their reality. Uh, and so I see this company as, 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 as much as a financial tech business, as much as uh, that, but also as much as a uh, psychology, you know, uh, based business, because we need to communicate these problems in a way that touches a nerve uh, to marketing problems as well. Like, how do you make pension sexy and engaging to millennials? Like, what, what, what do you say? What do you do? Can we, can we create something that makes it interesting, right? Uh, empower them. Say, hey, look, this is probably the biggest number you've seen. In a long time, you know, two hundred thousand in your pension. Wow, what would that mean to you? What can, what more can you do? And the other things that we're exploring is that, you know, we talk about social impact, right? One of the most powerful ways of, of changing society and in impacting whether you believe in a better environment or whatever is is actually picking your the right pension funds to put your money in, right? What companies are you supporting? And that's a reflection of where you put your money. If you don't believe in like, you know, arms trading, dealership, you know, bad environmental practices, look at your funds and make sure that they, they don't, you know, support those organizations you don't believe in. So that, that, that for me is another area to really focus on, reflecting people's values in their financial decisions. And that's what we can do with pensions. Do you think that, that also, you know, arguably the economic model it's a broad sweeping statement, but nonetheless, the economic model is also one that you're, or not you personally, but but that we are also fighting against in a way in so much as it's clearly, it's a, it's a consumption model. So that desire to, you know, to, to encourage debt 
in order that we might continue to consume is a, an ever hungry beast to feed and it demands more and more and more and more. And I think it's, that's also that challenge is that we, you know, we need consumption to drive economic performance and economic activity, but also, you know, I, I've often thought with respect to governments and how they might handle pensions, you know, that, that it's, it becomes someone else's problem. So if you've got a, you know, a, a governmental term of five years, well, if we kick the can down the road that we know we've got a pensions time bomb, but actually it becomes someone else's problem. So I've, I've got to worry about the next five years, maybe my next term, maybe 10 years. But, you know, the pension issue is on, you know, that's a ticking time bomb for 2050, or whatever the argument might be. So I can kick that can down the road because it really doesn't affect me. Someone else is going to have to address it. So we've got these kind of, all these conflicting uh, structural challenges that are also getting in the way of addressing a lot of these issues as well. It's, it's kind of really big, real big picture stuff. You're trying to, you're trying to tackle it and, and all credit you, but nonetheless, it does strike me. It's a, it's a really big issue to try and wrap your head around. Absolutely. I think the government could do a lot to help with this. You know, I think, you know, organizations like us, yes, we, we can do our part, but it's a social problem. You know, it, it's, it's more than us as a company. I, I see this as one of the most important things you can do in our lives is to help people, you know, before they hit this brick wall. And realize, oh my, I don't have enough to retire. I have to keep working or something has to happen. You can see it coming. You know, these these things, and that's the thing. It's not like it's unknown. You can see how much people are putting aside. Right now, the government mandates 8% contribution. That's not enough. And for most people, it needs to be at least 10 to 12%. At 8%, you're going to be retiring below the poverty line right now. But everybody is, you know, that model around borrowing to pay for today you know, even even from a government perspective, I mean, one point nine trillion the, the U.S. stimulus that's just been that recently been announced. I mean, you just yes. think that there's, I mean, it's, it's it's incomprehensible as a number as to how you yeah. get your head around it. And uh, for me, with limited economic capability and understanding, how you pay for it. I mean, goodness me, I've, I I can't even begin to comprehend. So it, it just yeah, there's there, there are so many kind of structural societal issues here that. I mean, all credit you. You don't need my endorsement, but nonetheless, that you're you're seeking to address. It's a it's a really really important issue that you know, needs to be talked about more consistently and, and with a greater voice. I might argue. Absolutely, and, and my my hope, my desire is that you know, hopefully, with our experience and what I've done at Perkbox, that we can create something here that strikes a nerve in society where people say, "Wow, this is actually really interesting." It, it suits their selfish needs of of enjoying the present day you know, desires, as well as saving for a future that works. You know, for me, that is that that point where I says, wow, we created something special here. And I think that's, for me, is like the holy grail. So how do we create a, a business, a, a proposition that gets people excited about saving in a way that is, uh, you know, healthy and it can allow them to live their, their, their present lives and also uh, manage, you know, the future. So that's, that's a, you know, for me, back to my point about clarity and uh, focus. Like that's it. That's what we need to do. How do we get people to save, manage the pension, so they can live in the present as well as in the future? So, in terms of, I mean, one of the questions I had was how much your experience with Perkbox shaping your decision making process and the direction of travel now. But it sounds like from what you've, you've taken so much from that, you know, from the early pivots, from the the the, the culture you created, from the focus that you've, you've, the resilience that you've learned, the focus that you've employed. I guess that inevitably the Perkbox experience is having a really influential bias on what, on what you're what you're going through now and what you're looking to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. I think the key thing here, if you want to summarize my experience, it's, it's about having vision 
you know, and having people that believe in that vision with you. You know, I, I didn't come up with all these ideas myself. I have great people. And one of the things that got me going with Mintico was that the founding team uh, and, and who they are. They are they are just great people. Obviously, I don't have a co-founder per se, but I, I see them as co-founders, as a group, uh, in, in a way that's better than anything I could have asked for. Because one of the things I always try to make sure that we get right is, is communication. I'm still bad at it. I'm not great. I have to say, I mean, I try. Uh, and sometimes I just forget to say the right things, uh, forget to ask the right questions, or don't listen enough, right? And so I think that's really what I've learned is, is that, you know, you, you got to have great vision um, and the people that believe in that vision. Because right now we're such an early, early stage of our business. We are growing, we're hiring people, but it's it's still very much, is this going to work? All right? Is it going to scale? Like we're not like, you know, 150 employees like Perkbox, you know, we're like 10. <laughs> so it's still early days, but it won't be that for very long because I think we've seen the traction. If we can tell that story, say, look, you know, we can help you as an employer so you can help your employees. And it's a very simple process and we'll do that for you. And I'm getting feedback, you know, from, from our clients. They love what we do. So that's that's exciting. For me, that, that's really what gets me going. Working with great people that is bonded and kind of, kind of, you know, stuck together through having a shared vision and solving for, for a problem that we all really believe in. And I think that's it, really. That, that's really what gets me going. So what does success mean to you? Success means having real social impact looking back and says like we've done and built something that is meaningful for people and what i i believe is meaningful is is, is having a better life you know i think that we decided to focus on on money for from Intico. and i think we can help people manage their money better through better control better education and tools that's really what you know success is it's yeah it can be obviously impact means scale so it's not like, you know, something we do just for a small area. We want to deploy this to as many people as possible. And and, and, and lastly, it's the team. Uh, I want to make sure that everyone that joins me and work with me and with us, you know, are successful in their own right. And I, what I say to my, uh, I used to say all the time, actually, at Perkbox is a company success is nothing more than the sum of individual successes. So every employee needs to be successful in their jobs the company to be successful as a whole and that really resonated with a lot of people because that forced people to think about themselves you're not here for just for the ride it's your contribution is really what defines the outcome for the organization and and i like that i like that view and i keep trying to tell people like don't wait for me to tell you what to do you do what you think you should do we've hired you we're not going to question your judgment obviously we, we, we talk and discuss all the time but you're empowered to make those decisions and if you succeed in those decisions, that's great because that, that adds to the total of the company. And ultimately, if we make enough good decisions, or more good decisions uh, compared to bad decisions, we come out on top. So who or, or what inspires you? Uh, I think, you know, I don't have, you know, I, can, I don't really idolize, you know, the likes of Bezos or Elon Musk. I idolize smaller businesses you know, uh, owners like my parents, you know, starting from zero to something is so hard, so hard. And there's so many people trying and I see them all the time. I talk to people all the time and finding that resilience, that idea from people and talking to people just gets me going every day. It's like, that's a good idea. I'm glad you cracked it or something like that. So that's, that's great because I, I get my, 
daily dose of that when I talk to other entrepreneurs and understand how they crack problems and solve problems. And and I, you know, it's a bit addictive. So I always will go back and talk to people and say, like, how do you solve that problem? How did that work for you? And so that inspires me. And obviously I, I do the same. So I say, hey, look, this is, this is what worked for us. And or can you, you know, refer me to this person or that person? So that, that, that normal kind of interaction with other entrepreneurs and other you know, thought leaders is really important for me. And that, that inspires me because it's not about, you know, learning about people distant from me who I don't really know. It's more about connecting those who are closest to me and, and can share ideas that could really help me on my day-to-day job. Do you have, to your point around, you know, sort of looking up to the classic Bezos or Musk or whoever it may be in the current climate, but who do you admire? Uh, I um, well, I guess my parents really. I think in its simplest uh, in the simplest way, if you were to distill it to everything I've seen in, in my life, and what I admire those who've given me the most sort of support and impact in my life, and I think I'd say it's my parents. Simple as that. They, yeah, they've uh, overcome a lot. I think everyone has. I think you know opportunities to to do the most of their lives, and you know making all those decisions they did, and and, and kind of sticking with it really inspires me because it's hard. You know, the, the normal course of businesses for most people, the default is hardship. Running a business is not easy. You know, uh, you can experience more hardships uh, than not. Uh, the question is, how do you see those? You know, like, is it something that you can just live with, bounce back and, and push for success? If, you, if that's how you're wired and that's, that's what you've, you've been taught to do, then, then you're in a much better position to succeed. You know, people get, People overinflate losses. I think. I think that's the one of the human psychological traits that I think is 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 uh, very important in sort of understanding as an entrepreneur. It's like you should accept and embrace failures because you, if you don't have failures, you're not testing. If you're not testing, you're not learning new things. And if you don't learn new things, you never improve. So embrace the failures because that's really what it is. And I, you know, I have younger people in my team just like. Don't get down about this. Is they always think that I'm ignoring problems. I'm not ignoring problems. I'm accepting it, learn from it, and kind of move on. We have to keep moving on because if we don't move on, you're not going to succeed because you're not going to find the opportunities we have. And you know, all this, you know, and all the pivots, uh, things that I've talk, it's 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 a result of multiple, if not hundreds, of decisions that were made that forced us to come to that decision to change, and change and change. And that's how success is defined. Very rarely do you come up with a, you know, a great idea and everything falls in place. That's not, the, that's not reality in the business world. It is, is quite the opposite. Away from work, what do you do to unwind and relax? Oh, uh, well, I have two kids, great wife, 10 and 12 year old, trying to do what we can, well, there's not much to do these days with, with lockdown, but, you know, going out to parks and this, yeah, uh, I think for me, I enjoy nature. Uh, I love to have, you know, I think more time outside, not stare at the screen. I think that helps unwind. I like to be creative in in, in sense that not not as an artist, but just learning about other things and to cooking, learning how other people live their lives and, and you know, and how cool is that and that kind of those types of things. Uh, reading about just random articles because I think one of the things to help unwind for me is I use this app called Flipboard where you just consolidate all sorts of topics and you flip through and just read these random articles about people doing certain things and you know and it's good because it gets me sort of i think the way to kind of really unwind is, is to not think about the problem all the time 
think about other things that make you feel, you know, alive and the world around you. And the more you explore the world around you, the fuller I feel as a person. And then when I come back to work, it's like, yeah, I can, I can I'm fully recharged now. And I think that having kids, they force you just out of, you know, <laughs> out of who they are to kind of think about other things in life and be happy. You know, I think live for the present. You know, I tell my wife, she, she likes to worry a lot, but I said, look, what you worry about is the future. That's why you worry because you don't know what the future would be. Bring, stop worrying too much. Live for, for today, right now. Uh, and, and, you know, if you can embrace that for a bit, it's up to you know or the future, but live for, for the present and actually you feel happier. And I think that for me is the, the baseline. If, you know, the default is how do you get to a point in your life where the kind of job you do, the family you want, the things you, you know, you spend your time on. If they don't make you happy, then it's not worth it. You know, so yeah, I think to answer your questions, I, I do as much variety of things as possible just to, to, to be a fuller person. And I sometimes the other thing is just getting back to community, talk to other entrepreneurs. That's always a lot of fun. See what they're up to. <laughs> See the mistakes. And sometimes I have to give a really hard sort of feedback. Say this is not going to go. <laughs> you know, pivot or, or don't you know don't do it or something like that. But it's always good to you know to interact with other uh, founders. Interestingly, I was going to say, what advice would you give any? Uh, aspiring entrepreneur out there with a dream, what advice would, would you impart them? Wow. Well, it has to have a, a good balance of passion and, and, and being practical. You know, you need to do something you generally enjoy, but it can't be just pure love over overshadowing, you know, the practicalities of running a business. So having that balance is really important, right? You know, because you're going to spend a lot of time in this sector, in this space, make sure it's a space that you really enjoy, but not to the point where, you're blinded from the realities of it. So it could be a space that even though you enjoy it, there's no commercial uh, opportunity there. In which case you have to find another thing to that you'd like to do, right? And when you have those two, uh, then I think it's a good starting point. And then when you start a business, research as much as you can. One thing I wish I did better was really talk with customers, really understand what their problems are, you know, create product, a, a beta product, just whatever it is. Because if you can't sell a product or a dream or anything, that's it's dead in the water. Doesn't matter how amazing you may think it is as as an engineer or as a developer or as a founder. If you cannot sell it, you can't have a business. That's just the bottom line. And so, yeah, don't get obsessed with research in, in the wrong way. Like if you create, you know, you focus on research uh, that helps you sell better. That's a good use of research because in early days, it's about product market fit. And how do you get to that product market fit is, is, is understanding what the problems are. So do that research and selling as quickly as possible. And so that's what we discovered. You know, we were selling financial well-being in a market that's full of other well-being products at Mentigo. And it was hard because uh, we didn't stand out. What we realized that it's, it's still a big problem. But the way into the market is, is to help the employer first to talk about what their problems are and how we can help them save money. And that was a major breakthrough because once you start uncovering budget for them, it's quite simple to say, hey, look, the government's allowed you this budget. You know, that's great. Thank you. What can we do with that? How do we help solve, you know, the problems for your employees? What are the biggest problems they have in their, in their, in their lives? Is it money? Uh, it is. Okay. What about pensions? What about these other things? We, you know, so it's all, you know, that's a good example of just researching and, you know, because we didn't get to that from day one. We would, you know, we're two years into the business and we discovered that about six months ago, right? So it took us a while. 
So what about yourself? If you could, if you could go back, what, what advice would you give uh, your 21 year old self? Oh, wow. Um, look for mentors, you know, uh, I'd say, cause it was hard. I didn't know what, I thought I was doing the right thing. Obviously I joined, you know, Amazon. Um, and I was over the moon. I was like, wow, this is the coolest brand ever. I'm just going to be here forever. Uh, <laughs> why, why would I ever leave? Right. But I realized that, okay, others, you know, I didn't know what my options were. And uh, I was fortunate, obviously, you know, you know, it's a great company. Like I wouldn't have asked for much more at the time, but did I need to stay 10 years? Probably not. I'd like to before I could have done five years, you know, work for large corporates and learned what I've learned enough to kind of move on. Uh, had I had mentors uh, early on, they could have said, hey, look, this is probably a good time to jump off <laughs> or, or do something else, right? So th- I'd say that. Find find things, do a lot of different things as well. I think I was fortunate because I've always enjoyed marketing. I studied that in, in, in sort of uni, got my first job as a marketer, and that was my first 10 years. So I got really good as a specialist there. And, you know, co- coincidentally with Perkbox, that's really what defined the business as well, is the brand and marketing. So I had a really... You know, I think it was unique because most people I speak to don't do what they studied in uni, they, you know, philosophy major or whatever, right? You never really find people like myself um, and also myself as a co-founder and, and, and a CMO. That's rare as well. Most co-founders are not CMOs. They're either like from a finance or engineering background. But what I'd say is, is you know, uh, get a mentor and just like, do as many different things as you can as that perhaps... You know, I could have started with a startup even. It didn't have to be with Amazon. I think my life would have been very different probably, you know, if I came in as, as a you know marketing generalist working for a, a fast-growing business, even though it wasn't Amazon, that would have been really interesting because I could have done various things. But then again, in hindsight, I wouldn't have been as good with marketing had I not focused, right? Now, 10 years in marketing for these organizations really made my, my, my skill set really clear and clean and really focused and really good. So I think it was hard. It's not, you know, my, my journey is not like any other people's, but in summary, yeah, get a mentor and do as many things as you can early on because you can afford to make those mistakes. At times on your side when you're young, right? And, you know, I think by the time you're 30, you should have a really good idea of where you want to spend in the next 10 years. So what does the future look like for you? I, I'm very fortunate. I really enjoy what I'm doing now. Uh, I want to, you know, obviously take care of Perkbox. It's still growing business. So I'm, I'm still on the board and, uh, it's advisor there and, and meant to go on, you know, it's founder, very young, at different stage of the business. I really want to make a huge impact, uh, with that business, uh, and, and bring, you know, great people along with me, uh, from a business perspective. But, you know, longer term, uh, I just want to give back to society. I think, uh, I've always been really close to the entrepreneurial society and maybe I'll do more things if, if, you know, knock on wood and my, my businesses exit. I can obviously look into, you know, philanthropy and other things. But I think for me, what, what drives me are just being with great people and, and very different capacities, you know, whether it's work or outside of work or anything. Um, there's a lot of great people who love what they do and I just want to be involved with those people. So for anyone who wants to uh, to find out more, where can they find you? Where can they find Mintigo, Perkbox? Where, what sort of you know, URLs, those sorts of things, places like, places in social media, where's the best places to go? It's, it's you know, I think with digital uh, technology business, it's all around you, right? So either, you know, just go to the website, get us on LinkedIn, get me on LinkedIn. I'd love to interact with you if you're an entrepreneur, no, no problem at all. It's anyone in general. You know, we, we're very responsive, you know, both uh, Perkbox and Mintigo. We, we, we want to help you where possible. But yeah, it's, it's, it's been great.
Fantastic. Well, Jude, thank you very much for your time. It's been great to speak with you. My very best for your continued success and indeed for the continued success of Perk Box and Mintigo. Uh, and uh, really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for taking the time out. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Jude. All the best. You see you. Take care. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.